need connection, accountability, support as you explore the next level version of you, give yourself a real gift this year, the gift of time. The Warrior Women Mastermind is starting again in January, a curated group of six amazing women in a safe, collaborative setting. Think you don't have enough time? The money? Wrong. Ask yourself if you're worth three hours a month and $25 a day. The biggest discovery some of the women who sign up for my mastermind figure out is they have so much in common with other women and that they have traded their worth for a to-do list. Set up your interview call with me by going to lizswadek.com. That's L-I-Z-S-V-A-T-E-K.com. Space is limited and will sell out fast. Don't miss this opportunity to put yourself first. Women aren't born warriors. We become them. And the road to becoming a warrior is bumpy as hell. Each week, I'm interviewing women who, through tragedy and triumph, are leaping for greatness. Get ready to unleash your inner warrior. I'm Liz Swadek, and this is Conversations with Warrior Women. Hello, Warrior Women. Today's conversation brings up some timely issues as we move into the holidays. Many family dynamics are feeling the strain of the pandemic and our political landscape. One thing that could help you not take the bait of battling with your family is emotional sobriety. Emotional sobriety is being able to regulate your emotions and your mood. It's being able to deal with strong feelings without resorting to addictive, compulsive, or destructive behaviors. We're going to talk about how to do that today and how to set some boundaries with your family and friends to feel safe and happy. I mean, that's what the happy holidays should really be about, right? Happy holidays. Taking care of yourself means not emotionally exhausting yourself for the sake of family. Today, I talk about my own experience setting boundaries in my family and what changes it's brought to my life. All right, let's get to it. Do you hate photos of yourself? Dread photo shoots? Have you ever said, I'm not photogenic? As entrepreneurs, we know that in this world of social media, podcasts, and self-promotion, we need photos of ourselves to connect with our audience. And unfortunately, many of us aren't happy with the photos we have. Kathy of Kathy Shoe Photography knows how hard it is to put ourselves out there and feel great in the process. Kathy believes it's not our job to be photogenic. That's her job, and she couldn't be more right. I just had my portraits done with Kathy. Through her guided photo shoot, she not only made me feel comfortable, but she allowed me to see the next level version of who I'm becoming. The me I wanna be. And that is everything. I ended up with tons of portraits that I love and I'm proud to share. If you're ready to elevate your photos and showcase yourself in a real and beautiful way, contact Kathy for a free consultation at kathyshuephotography.com. That's Kathy, K-A-T-H-Y, Shoe, S-C-H-U-H, photography.com. Use the code WARRIORWOMEN for $50 off your session fee and tell her Liz sent you. You'll be glad you did. Today on the show, Dr. Sean Horn. 
Dr. Sean is a licensed clinical psychologist and shame expert. She helps people heal, energize, and create a life worth living. Dr. Sean also hosts the Inspired Living Podcast, where she talks about health and wellness and discusses topics related to personal growth, self-improvement, relationships, psychology, and living wholeheartedly. Dr. Sean is a good friend of mine, and we have the greatest conversations. So I am so excited to have her on the show today. Welcome, Dr. Sean. Thank you, my friend. And she <laughs> even told me I could call her Sean, but I told her that I, when I know a doctor, I told you this, I get very excited. So like you are mm -hmm. Dr. Sean forever for me, because if I know a doctor, it makes me feel <laughs> fancy. And so you are Dr. Sean. It's become a thing. It's just, it's taking a life of its own. Everyone's calling me Dr. Sean now. So I'm just rolling with it. Yeah. It's like Dr. Ruth. You're going to be famous. It's what, what you have to <laughs> just deal with it. Okay. You are known as the shame busting psychologist. This is like, shame is such a huge thing. It's like the root of like so many issues, Dr. Sean. Like, why do you think we have such issues? And, you know, people just don't even realize that that's what we're dealing with it. We use other words to describe it, like being a perfectionist, a type A personality, a workaholic, having body issues, having self-esteem issues. All these things are talking about the consequences of the root cause, which is shame. So in order for us to address our emotional and behavioral difficulties, we, we have to target the core shame and inform people what it is. And often people say, oh, I don't have shame. You know, it's like this big thing. And well, they don't want to have it. They don't. Yeah. We end up having shame about shame. It's like, oh no, not me. My life is so great. You know? <laughs> and it's like, no girlfriend, hate to tell you, but we all got it. So it's, we do need to educate people about what toxic shame is because healthy shame, we all want healthy shame keeps us informed. It keeps us appropriate. It helps us to abide by rules, have empathy, a consciousness. So we want that inner conviction or to learn those social lessons of the world that says, don't do this thing. A lot of times people are really confused between guilt and shame. And so the way I see it is guilt is when you violate your own standards, but shame is when you violate the other standards, someone outside, another person, society, a community. So as we are growing up in this world, we learn in our communities what is appropriate or, or not appropriate behavior. You can't steal, you can't lie, things like that. That's so that's a good shame. That's good shame. You, you, you get told, don't do that. And you feel really bad. And so you don't then do it. But toxic shame becomes this message about you, that you're flawed, you're defective. Something is wrong with you that is putting you at risk of not being wanted, included, not belonging, not being loved or liked. And so when we get that shamed experience, which Really, I call it a social trauma. It's, it's social PTSD, really. Because mm -hmm. once you have that social experience of being shamed or observing another person being shamed, we are so terrified of ever experiencing that again, never want to go through that. So we become hyper vigilant with our thoughts and our actions and our behaviors to make sure I never, ever, ever do that again. And that becomes the how it's similar to PTSD. That is crazy. I, I I feel like this, I mean, does most shame happen when you're a kid? Like, if, I feel like there's a lot of shame stuff that happens when you're a kid. Because you were talking about shame dumping. That's that 
as kids, we kind of learn we are responsible for other people's feelings. Like they, they dump their shame on us. And then this, like sometimes we're living our lives as adults, making all these choices, Dr. Sean. We don't even know why we're making these choices because the parents like dumped this crap on us when we were little and we just like live it like it's real. That's right. It does happen in our, in our early development. Cause we're just going about doing stuff. Let's say you're singing and twirling and someone comes up and says, Oh, why would you do that? You're so, you have such a horrible voice. And then the person's like, Oh my gosh, I'll never do that again. So it does get anchored in our early childhood. And when we attach ourselves and make agreements with those shame bound messages, then we go through life convincing ourselves that it's true, looking for evidence to confirm that it is true. And one of the characteristics of a shame bound family is that it's emotionally dependent in that because they have this core belief that I am not okay. I am dependent on you to give me the the feeling that I'm okay, to give me the permission that I'm okay. And so they will constantly look to the outside for their solutions. And what they will do with the child is say, you are responsible for my feelings. You're responsible for causing them and you're responsible to fix them. And so we then go through life assuming that responsibility. If someone is upset or they're angry, we say, what did I do? We personalize. Personalizing things is one of the the outcomes of shame. And so we'll assume responsibility to fix problems. And then we end up over-functioning for people's dysfunction. We think we have to step into all sorts of stuff, which is not our place to be. So what happens with shame dumping, let's say I was conditioned that's not okay to cry. And then I have a child who starts to cry. It's going to create shark music in me, like, dun dun dun. I'm going to get really agitated and upset. And then I'm going to react to that child to make them stop crying. Because I've learned in my unconscious that crying is dangerous. It makes you vulnerable. And perhaps it activates in me the feeling that I'm failing as a parent. And I can't tolerate the idea that I've made a mistake or I've done something wrong. So when we have that feeling that I'm exposed, I'm vulnerable, I'm being told I did something wrong, we're motivated to do two things. We want to control our feelings and we want to protect ourselves from exposure. So I don't want you to see this in me, but I don't want to see this in me. And that's when we will shame dump and make it the other person's problem. So think of a situation where you're living with someone, you come home and they said they would do the dishes and they didn't do them. And, you, and you're frustrated and you go, hey, you didn't do the dishes, you said you would do them. And the person gets activated, they get their shark music and they turn around. Love and the they, shark music. Shark you know, music is such a good analogy. Yes, shark music. Yeah. And, uh, and they turn around. Yes. And they machine gun you with all of these things that you've done wrong. Like, I can't believe you're coming and talking to me about the dishes after all I have done for you. Do you know how much stuff I clean up at with you? You're such a slob around here and you're paying attention to the dishes. Seriously. And then you get into that overwhelm of everything in the kitchen sink. And then before you know it, you go, gosh, what are we even talking about? What's the problem here? So that, that is shame dumping. People will shame another person to help regulate their own shame. And because we have come from an emotionally dependent environment, 
we will assume that responsibility and roll with it. We don't have that clarity that we are not dependent on the outside. They're not dependent on me for their healing. It's an inside job. I, I, I have an example of this. My father used to get really mad when, when some, when someone got hurt, like yes. come enraged because like if you, he also got, would get really enraged if you like spilled your milk or like something like that, like that would like freaking send him. But like, yes. if you got hurt, he would be really mad. And so when my kids started getting hurt, I would get mad. And my husband would be like, you were having this craziest reaction to somebody getting hurt. And I was like, no, you know, and even if I like got hurt, like I stubbed my toe, right. I Mm -hmm. never wanted him to give me any sympathy or empathy. I'd be like, no, I just like, he's like, what do you want me to do? I'm, I'm I'm like, we need to be mad at the counter. Like, you know, like stupid counter. I'm going to move that. Like now it's become a joke, of course, in my family, but I'm telling you, I had this whole thing because I grew up that way. My father really, you know, he was afraid, obviously, that one of us was really hurt. He couldn't deal it, couldn't handle it. So the way he was handling it was just become enraged. And then here I am, didn't even know why, but it's like a natural reaction I have. Like literally when my when my kids come to me and say they hurt themselves, I'm like mad. Yes, <laughs> that is so typical and common for shame-bound family. We call them shame-bound family systems, which means they, they just have these rules that are common in shame-bound families, which is don't feel, don't think, don't disagree, don't remember the bad things, only remember the good things. There's a whole list of them. But in that family unit, they will get upset with typical human reactions. So they get mad at you if you're sick. If you are throwing up, if you can't sleep, if you are tired, you know, if you are spilling things, I mean, these are normal human things. And that's why one of the solutions to healing shame is to normalize the human experience. And I find that so much of my work with clients is helping them normalize, like it's normal to feel sad in this circumstance. It's normal to feel that you can't do it all with all of these variables and they just don't know it. They don't, they don't know. They, they have this belief that people are out there doing better, managing better, being more efficient, having better coping skills. And it really is a delusion because the truth is that we all struggle at any given time with either finances, relationships, or health. There's no exception to that. Some people are better at masking it and covering it than others, but we all do struggle. And, and we just don't have that information. So a lot of people, and we've talked about this, you and I love to talk about all this stuff, but th- we've talked about boundaries. I'm, I'm a big believer in the boundaries, especially because I think for so many years I didn't have them. Hello. Yes. Um, and now I've got really strong ones. And now I've got these strong ones. And now I'm like really strong about it because I've, I've learned that it, it's like the key to one of my keys to just even being happy in life is having these boundaries. How do we set real boundaries with toxic people who are in our lives? It's one thing we could be like, oh, I'm not going to hang out with that person anymore. Right. Like, I don't like that. That person, like every time I'm with them, I feel gross. Like, I don't want to be, but what if this person's in your family, Dr. Sean, or you work with the person and you got to see their face on zoom, Dr. Sean, like, I got to see this person. I got to deal with this person. So how do we do boundaries with friends, family, coworkers? Like, how do we, and do you yes. have any experience with this, Dr. Sean? I feel like you, you, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yes. Well, okay. So boundaries is really tricky. There's a lot of confusion about boundaries. 
So one of them is the most important thing is to look at your intention with that boundary. If your intention is to affect their behavior, that I'm going to set this boundary so that I can motivate them or I can put a desire in them. Like if I say, I will not live with you if you do this thing with the hope that then they won't do that thing so that they'll they'll want to live with me. That's a dysfunctional boundary because you're still managing the other person. If you are setting the boundary with the intention of honoring your nudges, your intuition, your inner wisdom, you are being the best steward of your own life. You're being your best inner parent, inner adult, and you're saying this is not healthy or in arts, it's not safe. So I'm then going to set a boundary. If you do A, you cannot live with me. If you do B, then you can live with me. If it's coming from the intention of being taking responsibility for managing your life, that is healthy. So in comes with this circumstance, emotional dependence, because when we are dependent, we are managing other people because we're assuming responsibility. We believe that we can change them, influence them, get them to do what they need to do. And number one rule, do not do another person's recovery. It's not your job. All of our recovery journeys are inside job. And the only one that can do it is ourselves. So we can't try to control someone else. Like, oh, I'm going to say this. If I say like, for example, if I want to get my husband to stop smoking or like my boyfriend to stop smoking, I'll be like, well, I'm not going to live with you unless you can stop. I don't live with smokers, but your, your true intent is really to get them to stop so you can live with them. Right. That's not, that's not a, that's not a good boundary. Or you reflect and say, I really don't, it's, Having a partner who smokes is really a deal breaker for me because it's a health risk to them and to our future quality of life. I am unwilling to enter a relationship and build a relationship with someone who is not going to stop smoking. So then I'm going to have to inform that person, hey, I really care about you. I really care about the smoking. And that just is not something I'm willing to journey with. So are you willing to work on stopping that? Or is that something that's just going to be part of your life? Now, our hope is that they say, yeah, I'm going to stop, but they may not. And if that's the case, we're going to have to take that hard action and let them go. And that's what often we don't want to do. We're like hoping, please make the choice I want you to make. And that's where- Please make that choice I want you to make, please. Yes. And and that's where we get that hidden control. We're trying to control other people to make our world be how we want it to be. Mm -hmm. And we must meet life on life's terms. We cannot approach life trying to make it fit how we want it to be. Because when we do, we're going to suffer. We cannot, we have to be very clear about what we can control and what we cannot control. We cannot control what people think, how they feel, what actions they take. The only one I can is myself. So we have to do a mantra in our mind. Like I am not responsible for how people feel or for how people behave. I can affect it, but I am not responsible for it. I can attend to it, but I'm not, I'm, it's, it's so it's there's so many thing. pieces involved. That's it's, right. It's not my thing. What if you're living but, with someone, Dr. Sean, who, cause right now a lot of people are in like extreme anxiety, right? Like they're, yes. it's almost like we've, we've gotten to a little bit of a point of more calm, but some people are still playing the record of last year. So they're still in a panic. They're still 
freaking out, even though things are kind of leveling off in some ways and improving in some ways, they still kind of have like the PTSD of like when the pandemic first started, which we were all terrified and we didn't know what it really meant. And, you know, we'd never gone through something like that before. What if you're living with somebody, you know, your husband or wife or a child, well, child differently, I guess, the husband or wife who is in this constant state of anxiety and you're over here feeling pretty good. You feel mm-hmm. like you've you're, you've moved on a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. you've you're maybe you pivoted your business really well. You're kind of proud of yourself. Maybe you feel like you've even learned some great lessons in 2020 and 21. And here's this other person who's almost under the bed with their doom and their doomsday. And what do you what do you do, Doctor? You're not going to divorce them. Like, what are you no. going to do with these people? You radically accept them and you love them right where they're at. And you continue to do you and not let your emotional state be dependent on theirs. When we're emotionally dependent, we say, well, you need to stop being anxious so I can be in this happy, bubbly place, right? That is us engaging and trying to change that versus, honey, I see you're really suffering. I'm so sorry. How can I help you? And, and you love them. You, you, do you want a hug? What can I do? You know, you might encourage them to see a doctor or say, you know, maybe seeing a doctor would be helpful. You can point them to resources and you can be a comforter, but you have to be really clear that you need to let them do their part. And that's where there's a new concept that I'm loving right now. It's not new out there in the world because it's been around forever, but it's new to me is this concept of emotional sobriety. Mm. And the idea with emotional sobriety is that I'm practicing not letting my inside emotional state be dependent on outside circumstances or outside people. I'm practicing doing what I can to tap into my own inner peace. And in order to do that, we have to get rooted into who we are. We just have to claim, I am worthy. I belong. I am lovable. I'm likable, period. And I cannot look to others. I cannot give them the job of telling me that because if I do, I'm making them too important. And when I make them too important to define my being, my identity, and my emotions, then that comes with expectations and hidden rules that I have the expectation that they will comfort me when they're anxious. And I have the hidden rule that they must do that when I'm anxious. And when we are engaging in that, we cannot love the other person. So we are, they, they are fulfilling a requirement of ours and it doesn't work. So we have to let go of those expectations and and really let those hidden rules expose themselves. So when you go into different situations and someone feels toxic and someone offends you and we want to say, okay, what was that that it brought up for me? It might bring up that I, some controlling behavior that I have, some area that I'm not rooted in a time I might say no to, or I might say yes to my nose. So it might encourage me to really honor my truth. And then we take the proper action. So that, that brings us to that boundary area is that we want to practice emotional sobriety. And just because someone is activating you, triggering you, removing them may not be the solution. That's coming from emotional dependent mindset that you are causing me to feel. So I must remove you so I don't feel. Versus when we're emotionally sober, we practice bringing our best self into all circumstances and we can be present. 
We don't need escape. We don't need to leave. We don't, we can be present in it. We can feel strong in that. Yes. And the person can say, you have done this wrong to me. And we go, okay, let me consider that. And you think about it and, and maybe there's truth in it. And so you attend to it. And yes, thank you for bringing that to my attention. I'm going to work on that. But maybe there's not truth to that. And you say, you know, I really don't have that perception and I don't see it that way. What can we do to move forward? And maybe you can, maybe you can't. So that's what we're constantly navigating when we're yes. setting boundaries yes. is what, what can I do or can't I do in this circumstance? So you and I've talked about my hamburger story, right? Oh my God, you know, it's my favorite story. <laughs> I know. Only because I, I really understand you because I have, I feel like I've had this happen to me. So yes, please tell yes. me hamburger story. So I grew up in Southern California, San Diego with a, a, mother who was a model and just beautiful and sexy and ran in those circles, Hollywood circles, so to speak. Yes. And she was very focused on appearance and on body. And throughout my life, she and didn't do it on purpose, but she, there was a lot of body shaming that I got from her, a lot of food policing. And I developed eventually an eating disorder, which is hard not to develop when you grow up in San Diego area or LA or the beaches, you know, I mean, it's just so encompassing in that, in those areas. And so I really struggled with this. And in my own healing journey, I started to change the way I was relating to food. And I started to give myself permission to eat what I wanted to eat. So I go visit my mom. I'm in my mid-40s. We go to this restaurant. I order this buffalo burger that I will remember this day. It was so delicious. at string french fries, which I love. And my mother reached across the table and took my plate and pulled it away from me and said, you don't need to eat that. And I stood there. Now, the earlier version of me would have said, oh, you're right. I probably need to go on a diet. I know I've gained a lot of weight. And I would have shamed myself, shamed my body. We would have left that restaurant. And as soon as I get free, I would have gone and binged on French fries. Yep. <laughs> okay. Yep. Exactly. So, but this time, I looked at my mom with peace, with a half smile, as we say, and I leaned over and I took my plate and I brought it back to myself. And I said, mom, I'm in my forties. I'm a mother. I'm a psychologist. I'm a professional. I'm an adult woman. And I am fully capable of deciding whether I can eat these fries or not, or whether I should or shouldn't. And right now I'm choosing to enjoy these fries here with you. And she then sat back and turned to the side and gave me that little snirk, you know. Yeah, smirk. I'm sure she was like, not happy when you know, your like little squint. boundary. Yeah. You your little line in the sand. Yeah. She squinted her eyes, looked at the fries, looked at me, looked at the fries, looked at me. I mean, all that body language. But I just sat with it and I ate my fries and I practiced emotional sobriety, practice bringing my best self into that moment to not do it out of anger, not shaming her, not trying to change her, but really being rooted in that moment in my truth. It's okay, Sean, to have these fries right now, even though she disapproves, even though she's shaming you right now, I fully and totally and completely accept myself just how I am. And I'm choosing to eat these fries. Yeah. So it was uncomfortable. I mean, it was, you know, it would be nice if I didn't have to deal with the shaming while I'm eating, 
However, I was able to honor my truth, respect myself, and have my own independence in the midst of her requirements for me. Right. And her, that her unwritten rules and her, yes, 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 yes. And then I had inner peace because when I left, I didn't go and binge on French fries right. and I didn't feel compelled to eat more. And I didn't do some weird diet thing to lose that whatever, because I ate those fries, you know, that kind of thing. Right. You kind of had, you had your coping strategy that was not a negative coping strategy at a positive coping strategy, which is you kind of took your power back. You said, no, actually I I'm going to eat these fries. And then you didn't have to do all the dark coping strategies that we do sometimes when we feel like we are shamed and we start reacting like I'm going to eat six more hamburgers now jerk when they're gone, yes, you know, like you're just that's so right. mad, you know, I'm about three days strong. This is what I know. We all have our limitation. So like you said, what do you do with family? You can't change them. You have to be with them or you're choosing to be with them because of the bigger objective. Like, let's say you want to keep your family together and that's what's most important to you. So then you tolerate this person or you want to be in your future and not have any regrets and, and you just think that this is wise and best. So you do your best in that circumstance. We all have our limits and I, I have three days. So I go in day one, I'm on fire, I'm strong. Day two, I start to get a little worn out. Day three, I'm hanging on by a shoestring, right? And then I need to tap out. So it's okay to know what those limits are. And yeah, to know if you only you, have a three-day limit of these, these type of people that you're around and you don't have to do more. You don't have to be like, sure, I'll go on that week vacation with you, person that drives me nuts. That's right. right. And take breaks and just do what you need to do. Think about if you had a child and you're going on a vacation, you know that child needs naps. You know they need to go to bed at a certain time, eat at a certain time. That's how we are a good inner parent to ourselves is we anticipate our needs and we accommodate for them. When we went out with our kids, we packed up that mama bag with food and toys and blankets and extra jackets and all that kind of stuff. We want to do the same thing for ourselves going, okay, I'm going on this trip. I really enjoy these people, but I know that certain players will be a little taxing to me. So what is my proactive plan on how I'm going to be prepared for that, what I'm going to do in those circumstances. Yeah. So perhaps you take a call, perhaps you have to go to the restroom, perhaps you have to do some, some tools, use some tools and skills to regulate your nervous system, to calm it down, to ground yourself. We have to have daily practices to help us ground and get rooted into who we are and this, and this place in life so that we don't get carried away because it can easily blindside us. Oh my God, yes. Oh my God, yes. Well, you know, I recently set a major boundary with my sister, opting not to talk to her or see her or see each other anymore. Um, I now have met a lot of people who've had to do this. And I want to know from you, we've talked a little bit about it. At what point is that the right choice? I mean, again, I did not choose that to try to get my sister to do anything or act a certain way. I just knew that after 40 something years of us trying to make it work, it really just doesn't work. And I really needed to move on from that and to give up my shame that I felt for not being able to get it to work out. I love women, Dr. Sean. I, I yes. love women. I am a warrior woman. I want to, I, I have my, all my girl tribes more than me, broad network. I love women. So it was very hard for me to get to that point and without like shaming myself for it, but it really has been right for me. So how do you know when it is time to say, I'm not going to be around this person? 
Yeah. I think it's helpful to have someone, a third party that you can bounce the circumstance off because the self cannot reveal the self to the self. The self cannot reveal the self to the self. So we might have things that we're doing or thinking that is making us feel that we can't tolerate that person or where we're not, um, where we're getting into that emotional dependence and things. So sometimes we have to take some inventory and see what part of this is mine, what part of this is hers. What am I doing that is contributing to this? Like, have I been tolerating intolerable things too long? And it got me to the point where now I'm going, I'm out. That's what happens when we when we tolerate, 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 then we either explode like a volcano or we abandon the relationship. So if that's the circumstance, then we need to practice really nipping stuff in the bud, asserting ourselves right then and there. And that person will give us an opportunity to practice that, so to speak. What I say to my clients is that when every circumstance is so different and so complicated, so let's say they they describe something to me where you, they have someone who's emotionally abusive in their relationship, and emotional abuse is like physical abuse. It's not okay. So you you want to first attend to that relationship by saying, I am not okay with these things. I need this to change. I, I just don't give people permission to treat me like this. So you can either do this and it would get better, or if not, then I'm going to have to take the next step. And if you cannot improve that circumstance, if it, if they're not responding, they're not playing, they're not being good kids on the playground, so to speak, then you take yourself off the playground and you then know in yourself, like I did my due diligence. I kind of cleaned up what part was mine. I attended to the relationship the best of my ability, and it just is what it is. And then you radically accept that without judgment, not making you bad, not making them bad. You hold self-compassion and compassion for all, because really, once we know the story, everything makes sense. It really does. And so when you know their their story and, and how they're thinking and their chemistry and just all the variables you can hold compassion for that person and you just take your time that you need to take and, and gather the lesson that you need to have and then just let it be okay. It's not preferred and it's not what you desire and want. You want to have a healthy relationship, but you are taking the most effective action within those circumstances. And if it's not clear, you want to find other emotionally sober people that can help you have an emotionally sober approach to that. One of the things I learned in my own journey when my daughter experienced trauma four years ago. And so four years ago, after going through that, I ended up doing going back into therapy and just getting support. Because I always say, you can't see the painting when you're inside the painting. And it's yeah, just- really true. Even though I'm a doctor, whatever, I need my village. I need my helpers. I am human. And often people say, well, you're a therapist. You know what to do. Yeah, for you. You know, I mean, I'm on the outside, right? So it's really easy for me to be objective. But when you're on the inside, your mind just gets completely you know, enmeshed with the situation. It's very, very challenging. And yes, we have skills and stuff. But at this time, I needed support. And so when I went and got that support, I learned that I was codependent and I learned a new way of codependency than the old way. The old way is I thought, oh, you're an enabler for an alcoholic, something like this. But really how the new understanding is that a codependent person is emotionally dependent and they're trying to control 
the external circumstances or people so that their internal world will be okay. So you are freaking out, which freaks me out. So I need to help you not freak out. So I don't have to freak out. That's emotional dependence. That's codependency. And so when I learned that I had to make a mindset shift to really be clear about this other approach of the emotional sobriety approach to it. And when I was learning that, I, I realized, oh my gosh, every friend of mine, every psychologist I know, every mental health person I know, even some of the therapeutic models that I have studied all come from a codependent mindset. They're all teaching, like when you go to therapy and you do couples therapy, well, if if they will validate you, you will feel better. You say to the person, you need to do this for them, and then they will feel better. So it's always a solution that somehow the other person needs to follow recipe or do it different or be better, and then your world will be better. And we're missing the mark there. We need to take that responsibility and inform people, teach them. This is what makes my soul thrive. This is what fuels me. This is what feels loving. I would love it if you do these things. And if they don't, then we radically accept them right where they're at. And we continue to bring our best self in that circumstance. And this is a daily effort to the day we die that we're learning how to take that problematic self out of the picture and really get rooted in our authentic connected to the earth, to our higher power as we know it, self, that can be clear of why we are here on this world and and stay in our own lane, so to speak. Yeah, yes. Well, I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, you're a licensed clinical psychologist. You've been that, you've been one for many, many years. Are you seeing kind of different things now in your practice, like with this pandemic and what people have kind of gone through in this last little while? Are you getting kind of people coming to you for different things, or is it just sort of the old thing that's dressed up in a new way? <laughs> oh gosh. You know, it's all the same and you did all base and shame and that's it. Like that's it. No, what? Well, no, really. But I want to know, like, are, are people coming to you with kind of different things or not really? You know, during this time, I cut down my client load from seeing 30 clients a week to seeing 15 sometimes, 10 sometimes. And I had more emotional fatigue than I've ever had in my entire career. And I thought, what is going on that I'm feeling so tapped out? Normally in your caseload, you have a certain group of clients, maybe a handful or less that are really emotionally, they take a lot of emotional energy from the clinician. And I was feeling that with every single client I was encountering. And what I came to um, understand was that every circumstance we have right now is like times 10 in the emotional experience of it, because we are so much more emotionally vulnerable right now. And we're worn out. We have been in a circumstance ongoing for too long, and we don't have any place of respite. Normally, when you're in a challenge, you can go for your walks, you can, I mean, when they close the beaches. Oh, no. I mean, that was wild. Please. I talked to someone in Canada, and she said, they won't let us go out of our houses, Dr. Sean, like they won't let you go on your own porch. I was like, oh my God, like that is just too much. Like that's mentally just going to wipe us out. Like we cannot have that. We don't have any of the typical coping skills. Get out in nature, go for a walk, go see your friends, go see a movie, do some shopping therapy, you know, go to a restaurant. The things we do to enrich our lives, those were not available and it made us have to be at home. And a lot of times the things at home that are hard were unescapable. And the other complicating factors that a lot of people aren't mindful of 
is that we have a neurological response to all this too that's outside of our control. Like if you hit my knee, my knee is going to, my leg is going to fly up, right? And we have the same thing neurologically that if we are not given what our brain needs, our brain will have a certain reaction. And this is what my TEDx talk is on, is the neuroscience of shame, that what I've discovered is that when you are on a computer and you're communicating digitally, either on the phone or text or on a screen, our brain is not given what it requires to know that it's safe. It doesn't have the the neuroception requirements for social engagement. And we have certain information our brain seeks to know that I'm okay. And that includes, I'm smelling you, I'm feeling you, I'm in sync with you. I can, we're in the same time, we have eye contact, I can see your eyes moving, I can just all sorts of things that we're sensing on an unconscious level. And when we do that, we go, oh, everything's okay. We don't have that because we can't be face to face. So by nature, our brain is already at a, at a threatened state, it activates its fight and flight. And we are getting no respite from that fight and flight. So we're staying in this persistent mm. uh, yellow light, red light of life saying, I, I'm not okay, I'm threatened. And then we're constantly being bombarded with the media. If we know if it bleeds, it leads. And the media right now, we don't have Trump to pick on anymore, right? And so now what we're doing is it's COVID, the world's coming in, it's going to get bad and something even worse is going to come. And that's where people get locked in and it's just no escape. And the and other becomes a little addiction sometimes, right? Like, I feel like, like, you know, when you think that everything is doom and gloom, you almost like look for the confirmation, right? Yeah. You're like, oh, let me watch the news so I can confirm that everything is doom and gloom. It's actually a neurological trauma response. The brain is saying, I'm in danger, I'm threatened. So then it gets hyper vigilant on the threat to get a sense of safety, but there's no sense of safety. So you get stuck in that loop where you keep looking for evidence that am I okay, am I okay? But our brain wants to gather all the evidence that says I'm not because it's trying to help us to survive. So we really don't have control over that compulsion. We are compelled to pay attention to the danger. Knowing that, we want to use our higher mental functioning to guide our feelings, to not follow our feelings, but guide our feelings. So right now, it's really important that people learn tools to self-soothe their nervous system, to to down-regulate, which is calming the nervous system, how to do environmental things to reduce that noise. Because right now, we don't have any more room for that negative feedback in our environment. Our brain is exhausted. No, no we are tired. And yes. the mask that we wear it as well will also create a physiological response that I'm in danger because we're getting uh, less oxygen. And so it when you cover your mouth and you have it like that ongoing, you're going to feel anxious. Yes. So we're having a proper, we're having appropriate physiological responses to these environmental things, but we don't understand it. So people go, oh my gosh, I'm anxious. And well, how much, and I'm having panic attacks. Well, how much are you wearing your mask? And they, they're getting them when they're wearing the mask in the grocery store because they can't breathe. And so they're getting shortness of breath. And the brain says, oh no, shortness of breath, I'm drowning. And so then it starts panicking. Get me out of here, get me out of here. And the person's going, oh, oh, it's a phenomenon. I'm having a panic attack. Something's wrong with me. And it's really scaring folks. So yeah. we have to educate ourselves about this is how your body works. And this is another thing we do in healing shame is 
helping people understand their brain yeah. and their and their reactions so that we can get ahead of it mm-hmm. and help manage it. Yeah. And I think also you're just like you said, it's been going on so long. It's the it's just the length that it's been going on. It's it's always like I can always get through things when I know, like even when they're terrible, I'm like, when, as long as I know there's going to come to an end, it's just this lo- kind of never ending. You're right. It's like, a, oh, now there's another variant. Like, you know, they're just, it's just too much. It's too long. It's going on forever. I saw yeah. you do something on TikTok. I, first of all, I love you on TikTok <laughs> because you're so fun. You're like, you're like a, the anti-psychologist in some ways in this way. Like you are like the most fun psychologist I literally ever know. I always tell you that about yourself too. You're so colorful. Like you're always wearing color. Like, you know, nothing Can't about help you is like depressing psychologist. You know, like you are just yeah, like no. fun in a box, like so much fun for me. And I love the way you teach things because it's to me, it's like, I can really like get on board with what you're saying because you'll either share something personal or you'll just make it like really easy for me to kind of like grasp yeah. a concept. But I love what you did on TikTok about the the cotton ball thing about with oh my anxiety. Gosh. What what was that? What is that? And how does that even work? What is this that? is a freaking miracle? And I I I came upon this information, kind of put two different schools of thoughts together and discovered this intervention, which literally I have had. Not one person tell me it doesn't work. And when I put this on TikTok, if you look at my comments, I don't know, it's maybe 700 comments now. And everyone said, this is a miracle. It saved my life. I have been doing therapy for years, medication for years. Nothing has halted my panic attack like this. So what I learned when I was doing the neuroception stuff, getting ready for my TED Talk, I studied Stephen Porges' theory on polyvagal, the polyvagal theory. And it emphasizes the role of the middle ear muscle in regulating our nervous system, in down-regulating our nervous system. And they say when we're under too much stress or trauma, that muscle gets jarred, like like your eyes squinting. And when it does that, you can't down-regulate yourself because it's kind of stuck. So it's paying attention to all the threatening information, the dangerous sounds, and, and it just is. And so I had learned that. And then I was on TikTok and I saw this little naturopathic Chinese medicine woman who said, if you want to get rid of your, if you want to get rid of your menstrual cramps, you know, take a cotton ball and alcohol and put it in ear. And she says, the reason it works is it numbs your, your cranial nerve that signals pain. And so she started describing what I had just learned from the polyvagal theory. And I thought, oh my goodness, if that works there, then it probably would work to downregulate the nervous system as well. So my daughter, after the, the trauma and stuff, you know, really struggled with panic attacks and things. And I have been unable to help her with that, with all the tools I had. And so I told her, I said, you know, let's try this. And it immediately stopped her panic attack. So you're taking cotton balls and you're putting rubbing alcohol on them? What are you putting on them? 70% rubbing alcohol. Okay. And you just, you just kind of like, as if you're taking off your nail polish and you put your cotton, put just a little bit of it on the cotton ball. Yeah. And then you place the cotton balls in the ear, not in, like you're not shoving it into your ear, but you're putting it in the opening to where your ear will hold the cotton ball itself, you know, Mm then, then your fingers. And you set them in there for one to four minutes and you immediately feel relaxed. It will stop a panic attack. I'm going to try this. Yeah. Well, I found people responding saying in the South, a lot of the mothers 
um, down there do this to help their children fall asleep at night. It actually helps you to relax and to go to sleep. If you have racing thoughts, you can you can use this like a meditation to calm your nervous system because what it does is it gets that squinted ear muscle to down regulate. And I do it too, like before speaking and things, it, it, it literally will make your face not look stressed. You'll have more of that relaxed, rested appearance on your face. And it, so it helps with sleep. It just helps with, I just think it's a good thing to do like yoga and do this to calm and relax. So I've had people tell me how much it's helped their family. And I've even had some folks that I work with who would call me and say, I'm in this really difficult situation. I need to call my psychiatrist. I'm going to take Seroquel. I'm going to up something. And, And they're bringing on pretty heavy duty meds. Be, to deal with this circumstance. And I yeah. say, just try this. How can people work with you? What can they, like, what kinds of things are you doing? So people can kind of like, you know, get to know you better or dip their toe in the pool with you. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. That's why I stepped out into all these platforms. Cause I found that so many people wanted to learn more, but I couldn't see every single person. So yeah. I thought, well, I will bring the wisdom of the, of the therapy room to the general public And so it's available to all. And so I make it available on my YouTube channel, which is at Dr. Sean Horn, on my podcast, Inspired Living, on my Instagram page, and which I'm mostly on. And then I'm I'm creating e-courses right now and on healing shame, healing trauma, and being emotionally sober, which I'm really focused on not just the why, but the how. Mm. I feel that that's the missing piece out there is that we all are getting the why. This is why it's happening for you. But they go, okay, then what? Now what do I do? How do I change that? What are the actual steps? Like you say, okay, be emotionally sober. What does that look like? And what actual steps? Yeah, what do I do? Yeah. Like how do you meditate? Do you meditate? Do you go for walks? Do you do some little trick with your thoughts? Like what do you do? So I'm spelling out those specific steps. So people who want to learn those things, I encourage them to come to my website and sign up on Let's Stay Connected, sign up on my email list so that when the courses start rolling out, they can decide which one that they want to take. And they can take small courses or they can take a big one where it's all combined together. Mm. So we're we're creating kind of like an a la carte and in combined packages. I love and that. So if, if they sign up there, then they'll get that information and they okay. can join us in being shame buster warriors out there yes. and changing this. Yes. And I'll put all this stuff in the show notes so everybody can get these links. And I will say that that's why I love you because I've been to therapists, you know, over the course of my life, I'd go to therapists and you know, to psychologists and talk to them about things. I always felt like, okay, but what do I do? Yeah, I know. <laughs> we figured it out. We know why it's happening. I get it. Now, what do I do? And right. you provide the now, what do I do? And that yeah. is why I love you, Dr. Sean. <laughs> Thank you. I know. Okay. And a lot of people then will turn to coaches and go, well, I need to get a coach because a coach says, we tell you the action plan. Yeah. But what they are missing is the science, the neuroscience, the, uh, understand how the brain works, how the body works. Like, yes. are there other conditions going on that you need to look at? You need to go to the doctor and have your thyroid looked at and see if you're deficient in vitamin D and just certain medical things that need to be a Assessed. Yep. And so I did have that experience where people would come and say, I learned more in this one session than I have in 15 years of therapy. I thought, what are they doing out there? Like, why aren't they teaching people? Yeah. So we do need to be taught 
a new way of approaching things. And then we need to practice, 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 and eventually we will master it. I love it. Okay. We've reached a speed round, Dr. Sean. It's party time. Okay. Party time. Cocktail of choice. Margarita. Margarita. I love it. Uh, (laughs) Any special one? I like it just on the rocks, no salt. Oh, okay. Yeah. What is a mantra or quote you live by? My gift to this world is love. How you respond to it is your own journey. Oh, I like that. That's really beautiful. (laughs) What makes you feel unstoppable? God, my higher power, my higher power, God. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I love that. Who do you admire? My daughter. Well, she, especially if she's going through all that trauma and she's, she's been a warrior. She just got a 4.0. She has been a warrior in, in, in college. Time, and 4.0? Let me tell in, you, that's like a 9.0 to me. Yeah, I know. In a call in college. And she's been, she goes to school while doing her own journey and dealing with the, the anxiety and all those things. And she's just kicking butt. I really respect her and admire her. She is my hero. I love that, Dr. Sean. <laughs> what are you most proud of? my, my children, my family. And I'm proud that I have broken the shame bound message I received as a child by being mistakenly placed in special ed and being told that I was dumb and that I had significant cognitive delays that going from that lie to actually getting my doctorate and breaking from that and really discovering that what could be possible and stepping into it. We need to do a whole other thing on that. We need to do a whole <laughs> other thing because we went to this great retreat together and you were, and you are, you are a six foot tall person. Six one. Mm-hmm. Six foot one. And you talked about trying to make yourself small. Yeah. We, we had to die laughing because we were like, how are you going to play it small, Dr. Sean? You are six yeah. foot one. Naturally, God did not make you to be like, in the corner. Yeah. I'm like <laughs> the giant. What do you want to share? <laughs> I'm like the giant unicorn ha- hiding behind a little small stick saying, you can't, you can't see me, can you? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I just, that I love, when you were sharing that, I just, I loved it. We need I to do, cannot hide. We'll, do a, we'll have to do a whole other one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know what? We will. And we'll, maybe we'll incorporate some kids stuff into it. Maybe we'll let's, I'm thinking yeah. about that. I can be your um, resident, your resident doc that comes on. Yes. Oh God. Mm-hmm. Yes. What is exciting you the most right now? This concept of emotional sobriety, you know, I I didn't know I've been talking about it, but I didn't know that it was a thing. And so I've kind of been getting into that literature actually to help my course on healing shame. And so I'm really, really energized by that right now. And I'm very excited about my upcoming TEDx. Yeah, I'm excited Mm -hmm. about that too. When is that happening? That will be in October in Spokane, Washington, TEDx Spokane. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We had to move it a year because of COVID, but. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, but but you know what? It's still happening. That's, that's the thing. Things have changed and they've moved, but guess what? They're still happening. That's right. I'm excited. Thank you so much for coming today, Dr. Sean. I loved our talk. I'm definitely going to have you back. We're going to get into all sorts of things, but you gave us a lot of great wisdom and people I know needed to hear this today. Oh, thank you so much. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining me. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. This is the Conversations with Warrior Women podcast with me, Liz Swadek. Remember, every woman has a story. You just need to ask her. Bye. Bye.